Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I am thrilled that there will finally, for the first time ever, be a black woman on the United States Supreme Court after Justice Breyer has said he will be stepping down at the end of this term. As a person who was a young man watching politics closely when Thurgood Marshall retired and they had the whole Clarence Thomas hearings and the, that which really riveted the attention of the country back in 1991, I have been fairly personally offended for 30 years by the presence of Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, an inexperienced, unqualified man who happened to be black. They just happened to pick him when Thurgood Marshall retires. And then it turned out during his hearing, of course, he, he was a sexual predator and sexual assaulter, which apparently is a requirement for Republican nominees to the Supreme Court. What made that confirmation hearing so riveting was the dignity, grace, and determination of Anita Hill, who testified about Thomas's sexual harassment of her in the hostile workplace that he created. And there actually was a documentary a few years ago about Anita Hill's testimony in that whole time period. And that I went to see it and she spoke afterwards. And I wrote on Facebook at the time, I said, I've waited 20 years to give Anita Hill a standing ovation. And so after decades of Clarence Thomas being as bad as we feared, Black America, and for that matter, all of America that cares about justice and equality, will soon have a Black woman helping to interpret the laws of this nation. And so I'm delighted that this is going to happen in our country. It's an important conversation about who this person should be and why it matters. And to get into that today, I'm joined not only by my co-host Charlene Chang, but also by a person who was a student of Anita Hill. Our data doctor, Julie Martinez Ortega, is also a lawyer. And she studied at UCLA School of Law and later at Brandeis University's Heller School under Anita Hill when she was a professor there. So great to hear her experiences around that level of insight. So I'm excited to have this conversation. And Julie and Charlene, how are you both? I've gleaned from Facebook that you've been out and about, both on attending the quinceanero of a mutual friend of ours uh, and uh, Julie and uh, Charlene apparently actually reacquainting yourself with your husband when, uh, on a date night. That was kind of rare. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll go first. I'm doing well overall. And yes, we've, you know, kind of broken the probably one of the longer streaks, if not the longest streaks that we've had, my husband and I, in terms of going basically almost two years without a date night, which as a parent of a young child means basically going two years without really like any quality alone time. Mm. And the, you know, I think a lot of parents maybe were in this circumstance where we don't have family around. So there was no one during COVID that we could ask to watch our child. We didn't want to hire a babysitter because of COVID and our friends were all being very safe. So we didn't want to impose on them and say, you know, take our child for several hours at night, you know, at night where you would have to be indoors and we had some friends who we've you know rebubbled with and the numbers seem to be coming down we did have a friend you know who we were able to ask say could you watch her uh, while we go to dinner and we had not been to restaurants and we didn't eat out we didn't eat inside we ate outside and we ate outside and we had a lone adult meal and it was fabulous and it was our early valentine's day treat to ourselves over the weekend 
And it just it felt really good. It felt almost like you know normal. Whatever that means. Well, that's great. You guys. <laughs> That's so great to hear. Um, it was just fabulous to be out in real life with friends. And as you mentioned, celebrating the quinceanera for a dear, dear friend of mine, shout out to Belen, brilliant 15 year old who's about to spend the next year celebrating herself, which I think is awesome. Mm. And yeah, it, it was strange to be in downtown DC in the mm. evening. There are more and more, you see people out more and more on the streets starting to come back, you know, in terms of restaurants, people being just sort of socializing out publicly. So there's still, you know, we all tested right beforehand and shared with one another that, you know, it was safe to to be together and, you know, took all the precautions we could. And it's um, proceeding cautiously, I guess, is, right. is the best way to sort of describe the, the moment right now. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> encouraging. It's almost exactly for me, the last trip I took was almost exactly two years ago and it was to DC. And even during the during COVID, I've been like, yeah, you know, I kind of miss being in the mix in DC. But I was like, hey, I don't even want to risk travel. And even if you get there, you can't do anything because everybody's all locked down. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's good to hear that people are starting to tentatively get out and about. And so the work goes on in DC politically. So Charlene, you want to lead us into this current discussion debate that's happening in the country? Definitely. Steve, as you mentioned, we'll be talking about Biden's upcoming decision on who will be his Supreme Court nominee. Chief Justice Stephen Breyer, as you mentioned, who had served, by the way, for more than 27 years on the Supreme Court, he announced in late January his plan to retire later this year. And his announcement then opened up this highly coveted seat on the court's bench. And so if we recall on Biden's campaign trail back in 2020, which now seems kind of long ago, he had promised to select a black woman to the Supreme Court if given the chance. And as I say, and we are all saying, it's about time. It's only 200 so years. Yeah, I can't wait (laughs) to actually see it happen. And I'm excited to be alive for this moment. Um, And by the way, Steve, I I was jogging my memory, and you might not even remember, but way back in 2016, you were early to the game and you wrote a piece and we'll put this in the show notes called Obama should nominate a woman of color to replace Scalia on the Supreme Court. Do you remember? Do you I remember don't that? remember that. Actually. Oh, my God. Oh, I funny. had a feeling you wouldn't remember. It was a medium piece. And yeah. I remembered that you wrote on this topic. Mm-hmm. And so I went on our into our archives and I found it. And I think, you know, everyone should check that out because the context, the argument that you present in terms of the art, you know, country's history, demographic revolution, and why this would be important is still relevant. Yeah. I thought that was, you know, kind of fun to just jog my memory and go, wait, we did, Steve did write about this. And we should also point out that on a previous episode, we've had Stacey Layton, who is a lawyer and friend of ours, appear on the show. And Stacey was a clerk in the U.S. Supreme Court to Justice Breyer. And so she talks a little bit about what that experience was like. And so we can link back to that episode as well. Uh, that was a great episode. She was so fantastic. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention is that journalist and also a former guest on our show, Ron Brownstein, described the upcoming nomination in a recent article for CNN. In it, he said Biden's choice ultimately comes down to whether Biden will choose a, quote, conciliatory bridge builder or a confrontational truth teller, end quote. The short list of potential nominees include 
Judge Katanji Jackson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and Leandra Kruger, a California Supreme Court justice. Both are considered relatively moderate and more likely to be bridge builders using uh, Bronstein's terms and framing. There's also U.S. District Judge Michelle Childs of South Carolina, who I'll talk a little bit more about later. And others on the list include President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. Eiffel, according to Ron Brownstein, would be the most, quote, dynamic dissenter and truth teller, end quote. There are also several other women, including Leslie Abrams, Gardner, and Biden is expected, by the way, to make a decision by the end of this month, which is, you know, just a couple of weeks away. It's a short month. Right. And Leslie Abrams, who is distinguished in her own right, is also comes from great lineage. That <laughs> She's the sister of uh, Stacey Abrams. So, Julian, Steve, what's your opinion on Biden's decision to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court? Well, as anybody who's been watching television or listening to the radio knows, he's just getting all kinds of flack from conservatives for being so out there about this. Right. So I just have to say (laughs) that I find it very rich that conservatives are criticizing Biden's willingness to, you know, expressly say that he intends to nominate an African-American woman, given that in October of 1980, I went and I looked it up. Ronald Reagan said, quote, it is time for a woman to sit among our highest jurists. And he was referring to the Supreme Court when he was about to nominate Sandra Day O'Connor. And then he went on to add, quote, I will seek out women to appoint to other federal courts in an effort to bring out a better balance on the federal bench, end quote. So, you know, things are upside down when progressives are being criticized for merely following in the footsteps of Ronald Reagan. That's amazing. I don't remember that at all. I'd like to say I wasn't born yet, but I mean, I was very, <laughs> I was very little. I was quite little, but I don't I, I'm uh, thanks for sharing that bit of history because I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it was actually uh, I had forgotten and kind of read something about it, but it was. But again, they can do whatever they want to do without being criticized. Whereas anything Biden does, right, is going to be if Biden nominated Trump, they would be attacking him, saying that, um, oh, it's whatever. you know. So it's just like anything by virtue of it. So I don't even. I think be, they would be actually maybe OK. If they nominated that might be him. the one thing they go like. <laughs> if it came from Biden, then all of a sudden it's automatically tarnished. So you spend too much time, Julie, which listening to what the crazies on the right are talking about. It's not good for our. Uh, well, some of those crazies are elected officials. Many yes. of them. But many of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> hard, hard to avoid because they're making headline news. All right. So, Julie, can you also talk a little bit because you're, you're there in D.C. and we've been talking about um, with different friends who've been trying to put people forward for various positions on uh, in federal judgeships and that, that it does seem like there's been some different approach we've heard in terms of how the White House is thinking about nominating judges. Democrats don't tend to be as mindful and certainly as aggressive in terms of getting good progressive people on the bench as the as the conservatives are. So what have you been seeing and hearing in D.C. as you've been trying to work with the White House around appointments to other positions, just sort of how they're thinking about getting people on the on the bench and what types of people they're looking at? Right. So I think we are seeing a broadening of the criteria. And that's something that's, you know, very refreshing. So we're seeing for the first time that I can recall 
a real opening for you know strong legal minds, but with a deep background in serving the public interest, right? We're getting more nominees who are folks with extensive backgrounds in government or nonprofit advocacy, and they're not just getting nominated, but they're actually getting confirmed. And you know, obviously the usual, I shouldn't say obviously, but it's still the, the case that the usual corporate law practice path or the prosecutor path to the federal bench, you know, that's still dominant. But we're at least finally seeing a meaningful number of exceptions these days in terms of who's being considered and who's being put forth. And, um, you know, it's also, I have to note this, that it's really refreshing to see somebody like Judge Childs being talked about as, you know, someone on the short list because she's not a graduate of Harvard nor of Yale. And for the federal bench, that's incredibly unusual. Do you know where she went? Uh, South Carolina, I believe, and school in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's an interesting point I want to lift up, too, is that we're fascinating about how our culture is starting to broaden in different ways, in terms of different criteria, right, as well. And we talked a little bit about this in the last Democracy in Color newsletter, and if you're not subscribing, you should subscribe to that. In terms of uh, black colleges, there's all these uh, you know bomb threats of different black colleges, historically black colleges, universities, but we don't actually appreciate usually the lineage of progressive talent, quote unquote, is Harvard and Yale or maybe some other Ivy Leagues. But the vice president of the United States of America went to a historically black college and university. The leading candidate to be the governor of Georgia went to a historically black college and university. And so the talent is actually widespread, but the people in positions of power who get plucked and put in positions of power don't often acknowledge that. So like Julia is saying, it is good that we're kind of getting out and realizing that talent is actually all over the place in this country. So speaking of childs, I wanted to point out that Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina, he's been really pretty vocal in his public support for Michelle Childs. And again, she's a fellow South Carolinian and U.S. District Judge there. Clyburn is African-American, for those who might not know, and he's also the current House Majority Whip and highest ranking African-American member of Congress. So this is really, really significant that he's been out there saying Michelle Childs is his vote. I think what would be really interesting is if she's nominated and we could see Lindsey Graham just tripping over himself, seeing her praises. Yeah, the home senator from South Carolina is actually super supportive of Childs. Like we'll have a bipartisan vote with Graham voting for Biden's nominee if if it's Childs. It's fascinating that Childs is from South Carolina, which has had such a significant role in the history of this country and in the racial history of this country, right? So the very first shots of the Civil War were fired in South Carolina. That's where the Civil War began. In the early part of the 20th century, uh, Strom Thurmond, who was the senator from South Carolina, ran on the Dixiecrat ticket in 1948, which was the attempt by the former Confederacy to really try to attack Democrats for being too strong on civil rights. Strom Thurmond, the senator from South Carolina, was the has the record for the longest filibuster on record, which was against the Civil Rights Act. And he was the architect of actually bringing white Southerners into the Republican Party. And then he was succeeded by Lindsey Graham who is the current senator from South Carolina and is, apparently what Julie was saying, a big supporter um, of Judge Childs, actually. So it's all a quite fascinating interplay of how all of this stuff um, is working together. 
it's important for people to know, and I know our listeners already know this, but despite complaints from people like, you know, Mark Rubio and Missouri's Josh Hawley about Biden specifying that he's going to nominate a black woman and people like them being up in arms like, oh, this is, you know, reverse discrimination. This is all about quotas. There's no doubt that all of the potential black women contenders we all just mentioned and many who are on the list, they're all just first and foremost, highly, highly qualified mm-hmm. and pe- period. <laughs> so that's that. And it's why it's exciting. It's like, I feel ultimately our country would be lucky to have them. So Julie, as our listeners may or may not know, you live in the DC area and you've been in touch with advocates lately who are pushing Biden to nominate a black woman. These advocates you're talking to, how are they thinking Biden needs to take into consideration when he picks his nominee? Well, I think we have to remember that South Carolina's African-American voters led by Representative Clyburn really were the force behind shifting the momentum during the Democratic primary for the 2020 race. And it's because of them that Joe Biden ultimately was able to get the nomination, right? He owes his presidency to those voters. And so the fact that Representative Clyburn is so publicly putting forth Judge Childs, I think really it it carries a great deal of symbolism that is worth noting, you know, when you're trying to understand like what are all the dynamics at play right now. And then I think the other thing is, given that Biden has not been able to deliver on voting rights, this is his chance to make good, at least on this other campaign promise to the African-American community, right? And to really just acknowledge they got him nominated and elected and he owes them. And really he owes all of us because the inclusion of an African-American woman on the Supreme Court is something that is so long overdue. It's like this big open wound, in my opinion. I say that as a lawyer, as well as as a, you know, citizen, you know, an American, that there has never been an African-American woman. There is such a deep bench, you know, to your point about the high qualification level of the women whose names are being circulated right now. That's just like scratching the surface. There is a very, very deep bench of just outstanding legal minds that could be nominated. And it's it's just so past time that I think that really is what's motivating and just putting a lot of energy into this this next nomination. I'm I'm excited about it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just listening to you and thinking about all the young people, especially young girls of color, young black girls. Just once they see the person sitting on the bench, how much it can expand what they understand to be possible, and that's that's huge. That's what a lot of it is about. And yeah. I just have to laugh when I've heard quotes um, again by people like Rubio and Hawley saying uh, one of them said like, well, do you know the percentage of black women in this country? It's, you know, it's X percent. It's a small percent. That's that's way over representation if they get one of the seats. And I'm thinking, talk about like over representation, you know, yeah, white, let's white men on, on the bench arguments. and in political <laughs> office way overrepresented, but they don't, you know, seem to well, right, want to talk happens. about that. Exactly. And that's, it, that's an important point to actually lift up. I think we've made this point before on the on this podcast people do talk about this like you know well, black women are a minority of african americans and a minority of women but in reality it's particularly the case for a thing like a judgeship is what you want is somebody who has knowledge and insight into the human condition and the lived mm-hmm. experiences of that part of the population mm-hmm. and so then actually black women have a broader perspective 
than yes. others because they know about That's being right. black and they know about being female. And so mm-hmm. the, the representation right. And about is, just being an American in this country. Yes. Thank they you. got it all. I mean, exactly. come on. <laughs> and I, I want to add one more thing that mm-hmm. I that um, I think is important to your question, Shirley. So back in, um, I guess it was about a, maybe a week ago now, um, Missouri Representative Cori Bush and 13 other African-American congresswomen jointly sent a letter to President Biden. And in that letter, they urged him to look past just the symbolism that I mentioned of a black woman nominee, but to also remember to nominate someone with, quote, a strong track record of advancing civil and constitutionally protected rights and whose work has shown dedication to affirming our country's most marginalized communities, end quote. And I think that really speaks to your point, Steve. Right. And that, and I think it also gets to the, the to the some of the debate around which black women right on the progressive mm-hmm. side. And so there's different points of view in terms of people trying to assess, like, who's the more progressive and who's not. And that I will refrain from trying to weigh in because it might be the kiss, kiss of death for somebody. Although um, Julie and I have a mutual friend with the college with Goodwin Liu, who was a point who was considered for federal visit for a, a judgeship, but then was seen as too radical. And he actually is at the, on the California Supreme Court now. But when he was being called so radical, I was like, maybe I should start attacking Goodwin from the left and say he's like too much of a sellout, right? <laughs> that, that might actually help his chances. And then just in terms of this thing about the, the position being on the bet, I saw, for whatever reason, the show in Living Color was kind of back in the, maybe somebody tweeted about it or something like that. And I recall that they did a, a skit back in like, 91 when this internal Thomas got appointed and it was Clarence Thomas's first day on the job. And then it's like, you, they have him in the sense like, wait, this is a lifetime position and I can't be fired. And then he goes on all full black radical once he discovers that he has this whole position. So you never quite know exactly how a judge is going to, going to play itself out. I was just sitting here still thinking about through this powerful meaning behind an important role that a person who has an intersectional lens can play on the court. And I I pulled up this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's by Judge Sonia Sotomayor. And she got, I think, some pushback on this quote, but it's just so powerful. She had said in a 2001 speech, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. And again, she got pushback for that, but she also got a lot of praise from those who you know, definitely see it. It's just having that additional lens, having the ability to look at situations with intersectionality and to understand more and expanded realities of people in this country. Mm-hmm. So let's actually talk a little bit about the reflective for a moment on the context because there's added significance of it being a black woman who's going to be in the Supreme Court because of the fact of the current, sorry ass, black man we have on the Supreme Court and how that all came to be. And that Clarence Thomas hearings were such a flashpoint and a transition point really in the country's politics, which has really riveted the nation, galvanized a lot of women to go into politics, et cetera. So I'm sure a lot of our younger listeners aren't just familiar. And that'd be good, I think, to remind everybody to talk a little bit about what that context is, because that's an important part of the framing and the significance and resonance of why we're going to have a Black woman um, put forward. Yeah, I'd like to just provide some of that context. Again, Anita Hill testified that Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and she worked there as an advisor to him. Hill's testimony was unlike 
anything any of us had heard before at a Supreme Court nominee hearing. Again, it was live on TV. There was a committee of 14 white men chaired by then Senator Joe Biden. And those men just grilled her on television. I just remember it being the national focus of the times. The Senate ultimately confirmed Thomas's nomination in a 52 to 48 vote. And, you know, Hill's life was never the same again. Uh, Thomas went on to sit on the court and she has talked about how she was condemned by many, including facing death threats. She eventually just became, you know, hero to many and broke so much ground and did amazing stuff. But uh, for sure, it was a very difficult time we all for her. Pin- there were pins, I believe, Anita Hill. Mm-hmm. So, Julie, Steve, I do want to ask you guys what you remember about that time. Again, I we were more or less probably all in a similar phases of our life. I was in college. I remember watching it with my friends and we were just trying to take it in and um, and just make sense of it all. And what I had just learned, Julie, this week is that you were Anita Hill student at Brandeis University, which I think is incredible. I want to find out what that's like. And I wanted to find out from both of you again, what you guys remember about that time. Well, at the time of the hearings, I was in one of my first jobs post-college working in DC as a special assistant to then the California Senator, Alan Cranston. And I really do think that other than the Judiciary Committee staffers and the reporters who were covering it, that I saw more of the hearings in person than just about anybody else in the country. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I couldn't tear wow, myself away from that. them. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah I mean, history. <laughs> you were front, not <laughs> metaphorically front row, <laughs> front row of history. You were physically, literally. Yes. In fact, it was so the rooms were there. so packed that I was in the front row, oh my but gosh. sitting on the floor in the front row. Wow. Like they let people, you know, if you were a staffer, you could get in and sit down there on the floor. And that was me. So every now and then if the camera pans low enough, you could see me in the background in <laughs> different pictures from the from that day or, or video footage. But no, she, she was just an incredible inspiration to me in that moment, you know, was part of what made me so um, enthusiastic about the possibilities and of you know going to study law and playing a role in you know in the advocacy community and whatnot, and um, I actually was able to my first job out of law school was as a plaintiff's attorney working on behalf of people who were dealing with sexual harassment claims, and that was still a very new area in the law because it was all just sort of coming into formation, led by that incredible moment in time that we'd all gone through. Wow, Julie, I'm learning, I'm learning about you like every second. I had no idea about any of this is. Yeah, well, I'm learning some of those parts, but other parts I know, as people know, Julie and I, we go back to college together. And I remember when she went to work at that district attorney's office, and we were all like, you know, radical activists of color. And I was like, why do you want to go work in a district attorney's office? You want to put people of color in jail? And Julie's immediate response, I didn't realize it was colored by the whole, the Clarence Thomas hearings was, I want to put effed up men in jail. Right? Mm. And so I was like, oh, okay. So, but, <laughs> but I just do think to be that, clear, is when I was considering taking a job, I didn't actually become a, a DA. You spent that ADA. summer working there. But, <laughs> but I think that, re- <laughs> that reflects the dynamics of it, right? I yes. think there's so many, a couple of yeah. things that were stood out to me. Well, one, I remember somebody saying that, uh, I think maybe even was Clay Carson, a professor, talking about how usually there's like one black person at a time the country can focus attention on. Like, oh, this person is smart and well-spoken, et cetera. And that you had all of these people. So the dynamics were 
you know, Thomas was going to be appointed. Plus, you had this, you know, all white male panel. So this was like, that was jarring. Then you had Anita Hill come forward and it brought everything to a halt because her authenticity, her dignity, her grace was really very powerful. And it shifted the whole thing and threw the whole nomination into uh, doubt and almost stopped it. And then Thomas came back again and did his little passionate, this is a high-tech lynching type of uh, finally, you know, tried to avail himself of the black history that he's tried to eviscerate ever since he's been on the bench. But it was a very, very dynamic situation. Mm -hmm. And all these people came forward to defend uh, Anita Hill, her classmates. And then people were saying that the country had never seen so many talented, smart black people in one (laughs) short span of time on national television. So you had that whole thing going on. And then I went back and found this column. It's interesting. I think for me, maybe as a writer, it has stuck with me for decades. There's different things, that a couple of things in the book we're putting in. Um, and then there was this column at that time by Anna Quindlin. And it, she opens up, it was the New York Times column right in the middle of the hearings. And it, it's just the opening words of this column. It says, listen to us. You will notice there is no please in that sentence. And that has always stuck with me. That's just like the strength of that she, as a woman about how they, they kept asking why. Why didn't she bring forward? And then she says in her column, the women I know of had no difficulty imagining possible answers. And so it reflected the sentiment, which then led to this political outpouring, right? Emily's List, the pro-choice women political pack, it grew by 600% in terms of its members after the Clarence Thomas hearings. Lots of people ran for office. The 92 election was called the Year of the Women. Right, 47 women were elected to Congress, all as a visceral reaction to seeing this all-white male-dominated body treating with such disrespect this Black woman standing up for truth. And so that is the context that we are now going to finally have a Black woman sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think that context and the connection is actually important for us to tie this together. And it absolutely just puts it into, you know, I just appreciate, even though I was around during the history, but to connect the dots and to remember that this is all leading, all that history is leading up to this point makes it that much more meaningful. And for many of us to just be able to appreciate it that much more and just to say to all the haters, you know, this is what's happening in this country. Right. And it's it, been a long time coming. Exactly. <laughs> and one of the specifics of it as well, right? The what, what she was, the way that he harassed her when he, when, when uh, Anita Hill worked for Thomas mm-hmm. is that he used his position of power to put her in these uncomfortable positions. And then with his whole different, you know, pornography addiction and whatnot and talking about these types of things. And because he was in this position of power, that's why she couldn't speak up, why she couldn't do anything about it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's the context and the dynamics. And then that power was asserted to get him on the Supreme Court. But now that person is going to have to sit next to a black woman on an equal platform. And so Mm -hmm. that's the additional consequence of this situation. All right. So we're up against the clock as we always tend to be, but it is Black History Month. My favorite month of the year. Just kidding. Um, I think every month is Black History Month, but it is good to pause and reflect. And I wonder, I wonder how conscious Breyer was in terms of making this announcement in terms of uh, having us have <laughs> this timing. Yes, exactly. Um, but, in, you know, I know, Charlene, that you do have these learning experiences with your daughter around Black History Month. Really try to help. It's interesting, I think, both to hear that particularly, but also like how young people are experiencing and learning. Um, and Julie, your, your, your son is not as young as he, as he used to be, as he looks at colleges, 
but I'm curious how you guys are both celebrating Black History Month and also a little bit of how your kids are engaging with it. Oh, uh, I, I think I've said this before. I just feel really lucky. My daughter attends part of the Berkeley public school system. And I will say the Berkeley public schools just do a, a fantastic job on issues of diversity and race and inclusion and celebration of differences overall. Uh, but Black History Month, they have lots of lessons of not just individual heroes, but periods of history that um, really show the influence and the impactful difference that African-Americans have made on our country to everybody to, you know, uh, that benefited sort of everybody's access to greater freedom. We also have a book that I have mentioned before. It's a sort of each day you get to read about somebody new in history in Black history that we sit down and read that during Black History Month. And one of the things that I've been doing personally, I'm I'm more and more, Steve, on your bandwagon now where I'm just kind of like every day is Black History Month. And so every month is definitely Black History Month. So just over the past several months, having nothing to do with Black History Month, I have been really enjoying um, two shows that I wanted to lift up that are relevant. One is a 14-part documentary called Eyes on the Prize, which is now playing on HBO. And it's about the civil rights movement. And it's absolutely incredible. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It was recorded. It came out on PBS years ago, but HBO has since re-aired it. And it was in the 80s. It was very seminal when it came out. Oh, man. Big impact on me. So I'm I'm glad it's going to be back out there. It is really powerful. And it is rich. You know, it has got so much content. So I'm slowly moving my way through the 14 parts and letting myself sit with each episode. I think, again, it can't recommend it highly enough. I think everybody in this country should watch it. I think it should be required. I think high schoolers could watch it um, for sure. I mean, there's there's some, because it's about the civil rights movement, so there are some images that are graphic, but I think high schoolers can take it. I mean, it's no more graphic than a lot of the other movies yeah. they're probably already watching. Mm-hmm. I was uh, also watching on Hulu, the documentary by Questlove, and it's called Summer of Soul. It's about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. It's a fantastic movie. And the fact that that festival's footage, again, that festival took place the same year as Woodstock, but didn't really make it into history. And that footage sat in somebody's basement for 30 years. Wow. It just totally blows my mind until somebody found it. And then Questlove heard about it, got a hold of it, and turned it into this beautiful documentary. Small trivia, I was born the year after in Spanish Harlem. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So for me, there's also this personal, Mm -hmm. very moving, very surreal to see the footage of this lively turnout of uh, just a sea and wave of predominantly Black people in that neighborhood celebrating and enjoying their lives and the richness of their culture and music during a very challenging time for African-Americans in the country. Knowing that right around the corner, literally my parents were living there, new immigrants. Well, they were graduate students um, from Taiwan, but new to New York City area. They were, I guess, you know, having a baby and that my life was about to begin um, in that neighborhood around that time. (laughs) There's something, it's a whole other layer that's very rich. And I grew up on a very predominantly, what my parents tell me is it's it's probably kind of Afro-Latino community, right? Mm -hmm. Um, they said there were people out there playing their drums, playing their boom boxes, 
a lot of music and that I was a baby when I was a toddler, I would dance in the streets <laughs> and they would say, look at that Chinese baby dancing. <laughs> and my parents always, um, I don't, I don't, I, they always say, you probably have a connection to African-Americans and, you know, the culture because you were born there and you, those were the first yeah, the sounds first that you sounds. danced yeah. to. And I say, mm -hmm. well, the first times I met you, Charlene, you were telling me how much you liked hip hop. Right. I, so I love it. I love dance and rhythm music, right. but I just, I think, you know, you, everybody has these like personal mythologies and some of it is like what our parents tell us. And I, mm. I just feel really, I really right. feel proud that those are my roots. So highly yeah. recommend it. Summer yeah. of soul. Julie, I, I, one of my distinct memories about cultural impact on young people, right? So your son was about what, eight or nine when Obama became president mm -hmm. and he, they, he had like, I guess, some African ambassadors or something come to his school right. or something like that. Right. And then he comes home to you and he's like, why are all the presidents black? Right. <laughs> I was like, that's some progress in this country. Yes, from his little vantage point, he, yeah, in his life, the president's a black man and, and then other countries' presidents are also black. <laughs> I like to remind him of that. So... As you mentioned earlier, Steve, he is he's about to graduate. He's, you know, we're in that transition time. And I'm really struck as a mom with, oh, my gosh, what are all the things I haven't told him or shared with him and taught him? You know, And so I've actually been trying to think of movies and things, books that he needs to read. Like, I, I can't send him out in the world if he doesn't know this or that. And mm. one of the things is actually Eyes on the Prize. And um, so I'm glad that you, you know, called my attention to the fact that it's on HBO right now. It's mm. um, I think it might still be parts of it might still be available on, on PBS, which I'm like a huge PBS person. So um, so, yeah, that's on his list of things. But I hadn't really put it together in terms of, oh, for February, this is actually even more timely given, um, you know, Black History Month and whatnot. Although, as you said, Charlene, it's sort of every day is, you know, Black History <laughs> Yeah. But um, but yeah, so it's it's um, there's just so much happening. I think the fact that this nomination is occurring right now, it's mm -hmm. going to mean that, you know, what's playing on the radio when we're driving down the street and whatnot is, you know, commentary about all these things that will give rise to a lot of things that I need to tell him about. I don't know now that I think about it, if he understands the significance of Anita Hill and that I personally, you know, had the honor of working with her and all of those things. And I'm like, yeah, he needs to know that. Yeah. And get, yeah. guess what? All you got to do is have him listen to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're making me think, Julie, that I'm wrapping the manuscript for the book. And as I was editing this quote from Stacey Abrams, and she says that when she was growing up, says her, she was part of what her mother called the genteel poor, which mm -hmm. meant that we had no money, but we watched PBS and read books. And <laughs> that so, was me. There you go. That was my family. And apparently, you can go a long way on that. Great. All right. So that's uh, all the time we have for today. And uh, thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy in Color is now on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. 
Until next time, keep the faith.